1: Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Live Wire Radio. We're backstage at Revolution Hall in Portland. Comedian Aparna Nancherla is here. we got music from Joe Pug and former Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank is here. In honor of your being on the show, we are talking about speaking frankly on this episode. Is there anything you wish you would have been able to say that now you can say because you're a civilian?
3: Not much. The job didn't pay enough for me to censor myself. I enjoyed it only because I could do what I want. But there was one aspect I'm not religious. I didn't pretend to be religious, but I didn't articulate that as much for a simple reason, I'm Jewish. Being Jewish is both a religion and an ethnicity and a community. I was the only Jewish congressman still in Massachusetts since 1884. Now, anti-semitism has substantially diminished in America, but I'm still sensitive to the notion that I might be doing something that would undercut other Jews, but I think you don't have to be a a theologist to uh, identify with your people. Well, here's
1: something that will differentiate somebody who's a respected former member of Congress, being on Live Wire Radio. Let's get started.
0: From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Live Wire! Recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Live Wire with longtime Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank stand-up comic, Aparna Nansherla, with music from Joe Pug and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, he shoots straight from the hip, which makes hunting really awkward and unsuccessful, Luke Burbank!
1: Wow, thank you very much. Thanks, Jason Rouse. Thanks, everybody, for coming out here. We have a great show for you this hour. The theme is Let's Be Frank. By no coincidence, we have longtime Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank here on the show. <laughs> Barney, known for his, his blunt talk and also known for his work in supporting LGBT causes in this country during his time in Congress. It's. Um, It's kind of an interesting week to have Barney on the show because the state of Indiana recently uh, passed what its supporters are calling a a religious freedom law, which uh, I, this is, I think, what the law says. I'm kind of paraphrasing. Uh, If you are a business owner in the state of Indiana and uh, you don't want to uh, give goods or services to somebody who you think might be gay, You're allowed to do that as long as, and this is the catch, as long as you're getting your directions from a space ghost. (laughs) Think some of you want to take back that hissing you were doing now that you understand the complexity of the law. There are people who are uh, concerned about the implications of a law like this, of a state telling people who run you know, schools and restaurants that you can not (laughs) extend service to people based on basically how they were born. But I would say to those nervous Nellies, when in this country's history have we ever looked back on a policy like that and regretted it? (laughs) Um, Now, I want to also point out that, technically speaking, this law is not exclusively applied to people who are gay or transgender. It is theoretically possible that a florist in like Terre Haute, Indiana, could not do the flowers for a straight wedding if one of the people in the couple had been divorced before or if they had coveted or if they had worshiped a false idol or if they had trimmed their beard. These are all actual rules from the Bible that can be found in the book of, we don't talk about that anymore. And I want to I also, on a related note, ask about somebody who gets into the floral game but doesn't like gay people. <laughs> That's like... You're, you work your whole life to be the person who handles shares wigs, and then it's a little too gay for you when you get there. Um, I want to also point out that this radio show, LiveWire, we are on the air in Indiana. We are on a wonderful public radio station, WFYI, in Indianapolis. And so it's possible, it's possible that even right now, the governor of Indiana, Mike Pence, who signed this bill into law, it's possible he is listening to this show. And I think what I would say to him is, uh, Governor, heads up. Uh, We are going to have a gay dude on this show in like two minutes. (laughs) I don't know if you want to turn your radio down. Balls in your court on that one, just (laughs) FYI. This is a pretty great country to live in, I think. And one of the things that's so great about living in this country is that you get to be yourself. And you also get to have your beliefs. And I know, I just know that there is a way that everybody can have their beliefs and other people can have flowers at their wedding. I know that there's a way to make all of that work in the same country. And um, I I know the people that can help us with this. They have an amazing track record. They recently solved racism. I am speaking, of course, of Starbucks. Because however complex this issue is, It's nothing that a couple of baristas writing Be Fabulous together on a coffee cup can't fix, people. Right? All right. Thanks for hearing me out. When Barney Frank was a 14 year old kid growing up in Bayonne, New Jersey, he dreamed of a life in politics. But because he was also gay, he figured that might not be possible. Little did he know that he'd go on to serve 32 years as a hugely influential member of Congress and that eventually the being gay thing would be much less of a PR liability than the being a politician thing. <laughs> his latest book, Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage, covers politics, his personal life, and lots of stuff in between. Please welcome Barney Frank to Live Wire. <laughs>
3: About Thank, you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Standing ovation from a, from a public radio crowd. who to thunk it?
3: it? Well, I, I had sometimes thought listening that I might have been getting a standing ovation but I couldn't tell because I couldn't see it. Yeah. Well, we'll tell everybody
1: out there in Radioland that that was a bonafide Portland standing ovation for, for Barney Frank. Uh, welcome to
3: the show. Can You grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey?
1: Yes. Uh, what was your childhood like there?
3: Well, it was pretty normal. As I said, I, as a teenager, I, I liked bad food and loud music and, and sports. And, my father ran a truck stop in Jersey City. Um, if you've seen the movie *On the Waterfront*, you'll get a sense of the atmosphere. It was kind of dominated by the Mafia, uh, a couple of unfortunately corrupt unions, the teamsters and the longshoremen, and a political machine. So it was—it was interesting. Um, you know, it was a very urban uh, atmosphere. I—I I, I had one, uh, one, one very well-known classmate whose name was Chuck Weppner who became famous as the Bayonne Bleeder. He was a uh, heavyweight fighter with more energy than skill who did win a settlement from Sylvester Stallone who had to concede that Rocky was based on his life. The Bayonne Bleeder? The Bayonne Bleeder. He always said that if the world championship fight had been held in a phone booth, he would have been the champion. (laughs) When did you first uh, develop an interest in being in politics? My father was what we today call an early adopter. He bought a television set in 1940, long, long before there were programs of any kind. And I remember watching television. I, I like the idea of the Frank
1: family in Bayonne, New Jersey, just gathered around the TV for years, waiting for waiting something for to get created.
3: Well, no, we didn't have to wait. My mother tells me that um, they would send out a postcard once a week. But if there was a cancellation, they would call you and say, we're not showing that this uh, tomorrow. But... Um, I remember watching... There were hearings run by a senator from Tennessee and for her into the mafia. And it was interesting. I was 10 years old, but it fascinated me. I didn't fully understand it. Um, but I, I, I was stuck by it. Like one of the things that I learned early on was that I, I had good verbal skills. I was, I've was. i been kind of clumsy. I, I don't have great mechanical skills. Um, but uh, I, I, I could talk good, and I could argue well... And here was this situation where adults were in this contest of, of words, and it, it dawned on me that I could be good at that, and, and, and it progressed. And, but I do remember being really uh, shocked at the age of 14 when I learned that a 14-year-old my age, a black kid from Mississippi, named Emmett Till had visited, he was from Chicago, and he visited Mississippi and was brutally beaten to death and mangled because he looked wrong at a white woman. then maybe. No- Nobody was you know going to do I mean? anybody. They never
1: even proved that much, really.
3: Right? Well, that's true. They just, they, they just killed him. And, uh, uh, well, the law enforcement was in on it, so there was nobody to, to to bring a case. And I was outraged to realize that there was nothing anybody could do about this. And I also, at that time, was watching the Army McCarthy hearings where the, uh, the Republicans used to think that Joe McCarthy's demagoguery was wonderful when he was aiming it at the Democrats. But when Eisenhower became president and he was the victim... They said, oh, it's too far. So they had these, these hearings in which McCarthy was being exposed as a terrible demagogue and bully, and, and I agreed with that, and I, was, I said, you know what, these guys are using words to, to, to win some important victories. And, and by then I knew I was good at arguing, and I knew I was good at arguing because my teachers would say, stop arguing with me, and I figured that was... <laughs> so um, uh, I, I decided this was something I'd like to do. Did
1: you know at that time also that you were gay?
3: I did. I realized it when I was actually 13. uh, And so when I was 14, I understood here was this problem because I'm a member of this very unpopular group. And I have to say, addressing Ben Carson and the other people who continue to still claim that your sexual orientation is a choice, they always talk about we chose to be gay. But as my husband is pointing out, apparently that meant they chose to be straight. Maybe they had been gay for a while and decided that didn't work and they should become straight. But um, the notion notion that a 14-year-old would say, you know what, I think I'll become a member of the most despised minority I ever heard of, that's every teenager's dream, to be widely hated. Sure. That's what all the songs are about. That's it, yes. (laughs) Secretly hating
1: yourself. So... You uh, were planning a life, you write in the book, of maybe going into academics, being a professor, because you thought this was how you could uh, be a gay man, but also be involved in, in you know, I guess to some degree politi- politics yes. or political policy. W- why did you decide to run for Congress then?
3: Well, I, uh, I had gone to graduate school, and I was working on a PhD. And then I was involved in a political campaign supporting a man named Kevin White, whom I later came to admire. But I mostly supported him because he was running as a terrible racist, a woman named Louise Day Hicks. And I went to work for him, and it turned out I was good at being a kind of across-the-board political assistant. So he asked me to come to work for him for a few years. I didn't want to do it, but he said, you, you want me to be a big liberal and do all these things? If you don't help me, don't complain. So I, I went there, and then I, after three years, I was very tired. So I went back to academia, and uh, I was supposed to write a thesis. And at that point, I realized uh, I was much better at being a general assistant to a mayor than at being a scholar. And I, I made an important discovery, which I share with other young people. When you pick a career, know your strengths and weaknesses. And in particular, if you have a characteristic that can be a strength in one area, but a weakness in another, be guided by that in your choice of jobs. Well, I had a characteristic that made me very good, ultimately at legislating, at being a mayor's assistant, where you're jumping from one issue to another, but not very good at scholarship. I have a very short attention span. And that turns out to be very good if you're in politics. Uh, Not so good good if you're a scholar.
1: We have six more minutes of the interview, though, Barney, so try to stay with me. I don't know what the time limit is for you. What were we talking about again? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, You came out when you were 33 publicly, right? No, I was 47.
3: 47? What changed when you were forty-seven years old? Well, I uh, knew when I was thirty-three, I was first in the state legislature, and I did know this is 1973, my first year. I would not get elected if I if I was public, and I I was ready to kind of sacrifice my private life for my career. And I'd listen to people who said, "Oh, if you have a really great career, that can that can make up for having no private life." That's nonsense. In fact, if you have a, a good career and it's getting better and you have a lot of acclaim and, 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 and you're socializing, but then you go home alone, it's worse. The contrast really gets you. So um, I, I decided I would not come out for a while, but I couldn't live that way. I could not live so repressed. So I began to think, okay, I'm going to leave the state legislature and be honest about who I am. And then I had an unexpected chance to run for Congress uh, thanks to the pope. You know what? That's a great place for us to
1: hit pause, Barney Frank, and tell everybody that this is LiveWire from PRI, and we will be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, who offer up this tip on goal setting. Make them small, realistic, and achievable, and you might actually reach them. So don't say, I want to be just like Gandhi. Say, I want to be less of a jerk to my cat. Or, Or don't say, this year I'm running a marathon. Just say, This year, I'm going to sit less. Doesn't that feel freaking doable? That's because it is. With ErgoDepot sit-stand desks and active sitting solutions, you'll hit your goal in a single day. And then you'll be a better person, just like Gandhi. Visit ErgoDepot.com to start your transformation. Welcome back to Live Wire from Public Radio International. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We're talking to former Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank. How did the Pope intervene on your decision to actually run
3: for Congress? I lived in the district represented by Tip O'Neill, a great man, and obviously I wasn't going to try even to run against him. It would have been ridiculous if I did. But the next district to mine, which did have a number of liberals who would, who would want to support me, was uh, represented by a Jesuit priest named Robert Drinan, an early opponent of the Vietnam War. And a number of conservative Catholics were very upset that someone as liberal as he wearing a collar was in Congress. So when the new pope came in, John Paul II, uh, he was more uh, determinedly conservative in many ways than his predecessors. He, uh, they went to him and said, this is hurting us. So he ordered Father Drinan not to run for re-election. And when he ordered Father Dryden not to run for election, he created the vacancy for me. So Father Dryden did say that he died a while ago, and he said he, he regretted he was never allowed to speak to the Pope because he was dying to say to him, you know that thing where you told me not to run, did that work out the way you thought <laughs> it was going to?
1: I want to... Um, I want to... I want to ask you about something that is fairly serious that you talk about in the book, which was that in in 1985, you paid a man for sex. I'm wondering, do you think it should be illegal to pay for sex? No.
3: In fact, and this isn't just self-justification, in 1972, I filed legislation. Basically, I think people should be free to do things that might be uh, irresponsible or, or, or not appropriate. If it's not harming other people, so in nineteen seventy two I filed legislation to uh, eliminate all the restrictions on pornography uh, to legalize marijuana to uh, uh, repeal the law against uh, fornication and adultery, uh, to repeal the laws against prostitution at one point, one of my colleagues got up and, and of course to legalize uh, same sex uh, activity and one man got up and said, "I don't know where the gentleman is going to stop he's for." homosexuality and pornography and prostitution and marijuana, where are you going to stop? And I said, well, I, I will make you a promise. I will not stop until I find something you like to do.
1: I, you, you talk about this relationship... I never did, by the way. Oh, really? I never did. You talk about this relationship that you entered into... Uh, with this man, uh, you guys met, again, it was a, a, a money-for-sex transaction, but then you developed a relationship, and you write that you thought it was one thing, and he seemed to think it was a different thing. A- and you also, I, what I wonder in, uh, what I wonder about that is, do you think part of your inability to read that was because you didn't have a sort of normal private life for oh, a lot no question of your life? That it was
3: my, my repressing myself that led me to be uh, irresponsible. And in fact, it was one of the reasons that I decided that I, I had to come out because i was I was uh, behaving unwisely under the pressures of of, of this concealment and uh, yeah that was so that's I mean I had decided when I went to Congress that I was going to first of all to see if I could live partly public, partly private, and that didn 't work either because I wanted to have uh, a gay life with other gay men and and, and women uh, socializing et cetera, dating, but I was too prominent um, i I, I could have privacy, but I needed secrecy, and other people didn't want to buy into secrecy as a life. So yeah, there's no question, and that was a, a major factor in my deciding that I was going to simply stop hiding who I was. I never, I hadn't lied about it, but I was, I was concealing it, and I said, no, I'm, I'm just going to be honest about who I am. Um, you write in the book, uh,
1: I, I guess actually, you're you're quoting Hank Paulson, who said that you were always willing to take half a loaf in order to get a deal done. Would you say that's been the guiding principle of, your, of no. your life as a politician?
3: No, the guiding principle is to try to get as much as you can, but to recognize that you are not in charge entirely and that sometimes you will have to take less, sometimes it's half, sometimes it's three quarters. But the judgment you always have to make is, have I significantly improved the status quo? And are we better off if we do this Or if we say no, will there be an opportunity to do better? And with regard to the financial reform bill, uh, I believe we did most of what needed to be done. And, you know, it's complicated, but there's a simple principle. The financial community had developed ways with money outside of the bank system and sophisticated information technology to take risks but not have the responsibility if that risk went bad. They they, they could take risks, and, and, and they didn't have to stand behind it. And what we did in that bill was to connect the two. We didn't tell the private sector what risks to take. That's still their business judgment. But we did try to make sure that if they took risks and they went bad, they would have to stand behind it. And I think that means, of course, a lot less unwise risk and more responsibility.
1: You describe a meeting in Nancy Pelosi's conference room. I think you call Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke the trouble twins or the bad news twins because they kept telling you how how critical things were. And you describe a situation where you guys are sitting in this office and they're saying unless Congress appropriates hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out AIG and these other companies, the U.S. economy will collapse next week. Were we really that close?
3: I believe so. Here's the way it works. By the time... We had evolved to this point. The economy depends on everybody lending everybody else money. Um, And if what happened after Lehman Brothers was lending uh, cracked down, with AIG, by the way, the Federal Reserve had already half bailed out AIG, and I, by the way, people, if you want to understand how bad it was, AIG, the insurance company, came in and told the Bush administration they were $85 billion short of covering their debt. A week later they said, oh, can we change that? We're $170 billion short of covering our debts. They not only couldn't back up the risk they'd taken, they didn't know how many there were. I will tell you that could not happen under the current law. But yeah, I think what happened was uh, people would stop dealing with each other, they would stop lending each other money. Now we didn't do it in a week, we took some time. And most importantly, we made sure that the loans were advanced under terms that would make sure we got repaid and in fact, we did get repaid with a profit. Uh, but yeah, and people said, well, why are you helping those banks? You know, what about the little guy? Well, here's the point. If the banks had failed and the economy collapsed, the heads of J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs and Citicorp would not have been out in the street. They had plenty of money put away. If the economy had slowed down, it's the working guy living paycheck to paycheck whose paycheck wouldn't have been on it at the bank. It's, the, it's, it's the, those people who would have borne the burden. Now, we worked to make sure it wouldn't happen again, but we also did have to lend them the money, but we guaranteed repayment, and essentially that worked out. Is that
1: your – what's your proudest uh, accomplishment during your career as a politician?
3: Well, that one, um, I, I feel good about what we had to do, but Well, was, you know,
1: stopping an entire nation from financial disasters, <laughs> that's decent for a Tuesday. I understand,
3: but in some ways, that was, a, that was defense. You know, you like to think – I'm also very proud – when I came to Congress – A gay man or woman could not get a security clearance, nor legally could you immigrate to the United States, and I took the lead in getting rid of both of those, and I'm very proud of that. Um, And a little known thing. My biggest issue consistently over time was to try to get affordable rental housing built for low-income people. I have been critical of mortgage practices that put them in a bad shape, and I think a decent home We worry about education, but a kid who hasn't got a good place to live and a place to sleep, he's not going to be able to learn. You're not going to be able to do his health care. So over a 32-year period, I'm very proud that if you ask the advocates for low-income housing, particularly rental housing, uh, I would get good marks. Barney Frank, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Barney Frank's book is Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage. We couldn't let you go quite yet, Barney Frank, because sometimes you just need to sit down with a snack and a good friend to work out the issues of the day. And we've assembled a couple of gentlemen who need some advice, and in the grand tradition of great politicians offering their ear to their constituents, we've asked well-known straight shooter Barney Frank to help them out while they all enjoy some delicious snacks which means now it's time for Tasty Hot Dogs and Straight Talk in a segment we're calling Frank's with Frank.
4: Frank gave Frank a hot dog. Frank said, hey, Frank, thanks. Let's go talk to Barney Frank. It's Frank's and Frank's with Frank.
1: Just for the folks listening... Out there in Radioland, we have esteemed longtime Congressman Barney Frank clutching a gigantic (laughs) hot dog right here on stage as part of our Franks with Franks segment. Okay, we've also got some Franks who are gonna ask you some questions. Frank DiMario and Frank Beaton will also be enjoying delicious frankfurters. From Portland's Window Service Sausage Shack, Frank's a lot. We've got Franks DiMario and Beaton here to tell Congressman Barney Frank their problems. Barney, you're going to do your best to help solve these problems that these two Franks have. And our own Andrew Harris has a little bit more on how this is all going to work. What's going on here, Andrew?
4: Well, we have two Franks on stage, and we have many delicious Franks. So up first is Frank DiMario. He is a 39-year-old movie theater manager from Portland, Oregon. And tonight he is enjoying a delicious pepper jack cheddar corn dog triple dipped in cracked barley yellow cornmeal and aged Alabama
1: buttermilk.
3: Excuse me, is that his problem?
1: (laughs) It will be in about six hours. I think that's probably right. All right, Frank number one, what's your question for former Congressman Barney Frank?
0: Well, Mr. Frank, I have a, a friend, a golfing buddy, who every time we go out and play golf together, he's constantly cheating. Um... He's always shaving strokes from his score, and he thinks that I don't notice this, and I've never really been good with confrontation, so how should I handle this situation?
3: Are you playing for money? No. Get over it.
1: (laughs) Short but sweet from Barney Frank. Unlike this (laughs) corndog. All right, um,
4: Andrew, who's next? Up next is Frank Beaton, a 30-something freelance comic book writer living the dream in Portland, Oregon. He's enjoying a big German beer Frank, an authentic Deutsche Franke-styled Frank prepared in rich, frothy, pinewood-infused, pit-fire-smoked dark beer.
1: Frank, go for it. (laughs) Congressman, uh, I have a neighbor who's very uh, peculiar about uh, people parking in front of his house. So uh, one day, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, he goes to the hardware store, he picks up a can of paint and goes out and paints his curbs yellow is it worth doing something about
5: it? Is it worth calling somebody or something because uh, it's
2: uh, I don't know.
3: Of course um, it is because presumably you have people coming to visit you and if you do not point that out to them uh, that would inconvenience your guests so that's just outrageous behavior and I would call the cops and make it clear that he can't do that um, and uh so your people wouldn't be inconvenienced. Uh, if not, somebody might decide, if he were to keep that up, to paint other things yellow <laughs> on his property. Where, where would it end?
1: Yeah. yeah. Huge problem here in Portland. Um, Franks, how are the Franks? Really German. Super German. Yeah. Very How's good. Yours? Very good. Uh, Barney, you kind of disassembled your Frank. Yes, I did.
3: You're not... Not interested? Well, I, at dinner, you guys didn't tell me this part of the stick. <laughs> so, you know, I, got, I would just... I mean, you didn't ask me for advice, but let me give it to you. Sometimes yes. spontaneity can be overrated. Even more amazing advice from Barney
1: Frank. That was Frank's with Frank's and Frank. Frank, big Frank, Frank, hot
4: dog. Frank said, hey, Frank, thanks. Right. Let's go talk to Barney
1: Frank, it's Frank's. And thanks, word frank. Barney Frank, also Frank DiMario and Frank Beaton, everybody. After touring relentlessly for four years, singer-songwriter Joe Pug finally took a breather and it paid off. His latest release, Windfall, has been called his best yet by critics who have called him a more urgent, imploring, and non-whiny Bob Dylan. <laughs> Bob Dylan apparently responded to that review. But no one could tell what he was saying (laughs) Anyway, please welcome the clear-voiced And non-whiny Joe Pug to Livewire
5: Never had enough to be the favorite son And so I never had enough to disappoint no one Everything I ever done, it never came too much Maybe then I could have said that I was just washed up Hi, my brother was a soldier, he was straight and true Mama said he was a member of the chosen few But I guess he never felt he ever got his due He wrote a note and put a rope around his neck last June let them burn and shine Let them burn and shine Let that last long dance Just be yours and mine Let them spin their wheels Turn their pages Break their knives On the rock of edges Baby, we'll be fine Let them burn, burn and shine well no one ever whistled when you walked by because you never caught the corner of the public eye when you left town you got one goodbye from the sign at the Frederick County line Hi, oh, your sisters a looker; she was tall and wild she had a star-crossed lover On a moonlit mile Then she met a politician And she had his child It takes the bottom of a bottle Just to make her smile Let them burn and shine Let them burn and shine Let that last long dance Just be yours and mine Let them spin their wheels. Pages Break their knives On the rack of Ages, baby, we'll be Fine Let them burn Burn and shine Let them burn and shine Let them burn Shine. Let that last long dance just be yours and mine Let them spin their wheels, turn their pages Break their knives on the rock of edges Baby, we'll be fine Let them burn, burn and shine
3: Thank
1: that was Joe Pug. Hey, you're listening to Livewire Radio. If you're going to be in the Portland area, join us for a live show and see how the public radio sausage gets made. You can find more information at livewireradio.org. All right, this is Livewire, and we're talking this week about being honest, but we all have situations in our lives that we've had to basically bite our tongues over things we don't say out of politeness or fear of rocking the boat or maybe wanting to keep our jobs in a public radio show. Anyway, uh, we've asked our live audience here at Revolution Hall to anonymously rant away on a card, and then we've offered the services of our professional troupe of actors and angry people, frankly, to rant for them so they can at least get some satisfaction of someone saying it in a segment we're calling Let's Be Frank. First up... Andrew Harris.
4: Hi, this is, well, we can't use the real name, but it starts with a K and ends with Rista. (laughs) Says, uh, when you tell people that you can only drink gluten-free beer, it makes you seem a little out of touch. I know, feeling stomach queasiness and a headache after a long night of drinking sucks. But that's not a gluten intolerance. It's called a f***ing hangover. (laughs) Okay? Go drink some fluoride-free water or pet a hypoallergenic cat. And by the way, this is me talking right now. Cats aren't like a bowl of raisin bran that you just pick out the raisins because you don't like them, you know? You don't get to scrape off the mushrooms on this, okay? There might be something about cats and allergies that is germane to the very catness of cats. Maybe it's a defense mechanism against people who are lousy with cats. I think that our alien overlords should create a race of humans that are devoid of the ability to bitch about gluten in
1: their beer. Andrew Harris, ladies and gentlemen. Reading someone's rant and doing a little freelancing. Next up, it's Courtney Hommeister. Uh, This is from Handlebar's mustache. Uh... Is that like attorneys general? (laughs) Yes. The bike version. Hey, just because you're dressed head-to-toe in spandex doesn't mean you're allowed to completely ignore every single traffic law. I know you're dressed like Lance Armstrong, but this isn't the Tour de France. This is my Wednesday morning commute. Quit making the rest of us normally-dressed bikers look bad. Um, And I'm not... I'm not a biker, but I feel like this actually does translate, like, to the office. Like, I just want to say, you know, hey,
2: lady, you know, just because you're dressed in, like, a blouse and, like, pants, you know, that doesn't make you Olivia Pope, and stop making those of us dressed in sweatsuits with pizza stains look bad. Thank you.
1: Next up, it's Jason Rouse.
0: In her retirement, my mother has taken up oil painting. She has proven to be quite skilled at objects, nature, and street scenes. However, people, specifically faces, are her kryptonite. Of this, she seems quite unaware as she continues to paint unfortunate portraits of my children. And guilting my wife and I to hang them on the walls of the family home. I know no one can objectively gauge the beauty of their own children, but I'm pretty sure my daughters don't look like Steve Buscemi. (laughs) And an elderly man's foot. (laughs) Folks, I'm gonna peel back the curtain. I, I know people. I have some friends named Ted and Annette Fleming, and they suffer from this. And I wanna say to all the mothers out there, enough. Menopause isn't a good enough reason for your bizarre eye-to-brain malady. If you hate your grandchildren so much, just tell them. They'll understand. They know. Thank you. Jason Rouse
1: with a message to the would-be artists of the menopausal world. Next up, it's uh, Sean McGrath. This one's from Cindy. Uh... I get
4: that the hospitality industry can be a rough go, but the automatic tip thing has gotten excessive. You moved a $3 slice of pizza from a pan onto a paper plate and then handed me the plate. How is that tip worthy? Throwing me a dirty look because I don't toss a buck in your jar, I mean, that's a 33% tip. You didn't grind any beans or even heat anything up. Just remove the sneeze guard and hand me the plate, and I will do it myself. Enough is enough. And then she just wrote
1: ack at the end there. So. Oh, that was written by the cartoon character, Kathy. It was written by Kathy <laughs> using <laughs>
4: the, uh, the pseudonym Cindy to cover oh, things yeah. up here. So She's nice a chocoholic. Job. Very anonymous.
1: All right. Ack. <laughs> Thank you, Sean McGrath, ladies and gentlemen. Also, Jason Rouse, Courtney Hommeister, and Andrew Harris. The little Frank talk on behalf of our audience. All right, this is Livewire. We're the show that believes in radical honesty which is a hip-hop group out of San Diego that we're really into right now. Oh, you thought we meant, like, telling the truth? No, no. That makes people super mad. We don't do that. Here's something that's definitely not a lie. LiveWire is brought to you in part by New Belgium Brewing, this week featuring their Slow Ride Session IPA, with hints of melon, peach, and lime, and seven hop varieties. This one is fruity in the front, hoppy in the back, if you know what I mean. More information on how to start your session at newbelgium.com. If we never actually got to see the stand-up of comic Aparna Nancherla live and could only read her Twitter feed, we would still be pretty happy. With gems like, parades are like if a marathon was buffering. (laughs) It's no wonder her absurdist point of view has led to appearances on Conan at midnight and a spot on the writing team for the totally great but totally cancelled before its time, totally biased with W. Kamau Bell. Please welcome Aparna Nancherla, a live wire
2: hello oh oh so friendly i uh i feel like we should get right into things you know we don't have a lot of time left here on earth uh things are ending it's good to get to the point I was thinking about this the other day. Don't you guys hate when... That's all I have for that one. Uh, (laughs) Feel like I'm hitting on some truths, cracking things open. No, this is something I do hate. I hate when you're going in for the handshake, but the other person is going in for the fist bump, but then you realize you're in front of a mirror and you don't know who you are anymore. (laughs) I hate that. One of my pet peeves top five, at least. Comedy has been treating me well. I've been able to uh, travel more for it. I'm here, you know. Uh, But I've I've gotten to go to some cool places in the past year. Like, I went to Dubai for the first time. Has anyone been to Dubai? Is anyone there right now? Cool. Uh, To me, it felt like what happens when a shopping mall and a space station love each other very, very much. (laughs) That's how you make a Dubai if you wanted your own But I was actually just passing through. I was going uh, to Australia to do a comedy festival and Australia's the farthest I've ever traveled for anything. Like, the plane ride to get there was so long that halfway through, I just started putting my hand up to the window and thinking about the life I left behind. (laughs) Like, I just went into PBS documentary immigrant mode. (laughs) I was just like, Papa! I don't even know, a Papa. Grabbed the woman's baby next to me and was just like, the fever will pass. I'm really committed. It's kind of her fault for having her baby out, you know? Pretty sure you're supposed to store them in the overhead bin for international flights. It's the new protocol. When I was going to Australia, though, you go through customs, you fill out a little card to explain why you're there, and they have a line to put your occupation down. I put comedian like a dummy, because then when I was going in, the customs official looked at it, and then he looked at me, and he was just like, you're a comedian? I was like, great, my first heckle, I'm not even in the country. (laughs) This is going so well. And then I didn't know what to say. Like, I didn't even know what day it was at that point. So I was just like, yeah, yeah, I guess I am. Like, we were both disappointed. (laughs) I was like, that is my handwriting. Facts are facts. And then he was just like, oh, well, have you heard of Carl Barron? And I was like, no. He was like, you should check him out. And I Googled him, and Carl Barron is like this popular Australian comedian. It's like, that's always a good sign when you tell someone what you do, and they're just like, here's a better version of you, probably. (laughs) Good luck with your dreams. (laughs) Like, if I had put down lawyer, would he have been like, oh, have you heard of Judge Judy? (laughs) You should check her out. She's probably saved more lives than you with her no-nonsense jabs (laughs) and sensible haircut. Like, yeah, those are her strengths. In that guy's defense, I don't look like a lot of things. Like, even if I had put down plumber, he would have been like, yeah, right. Have you heard of the Mario Brothers? (laughs) Like, they're not even real. It's like, yeah, but they do a hell of a job. It's true. Point Australia. I think in retrospect, I should have just written down, Customs Official. (laughs) I've been like, have you heard of me? Yeah, not a fan. Not a fan of your work. Judging from what I've seen so far. So uh, I'm recently still single. Thank you. Uh, But one of my pet peeves as a single person is sometimes... In the city, you get caught walking behind couples on the sidewalk. And you know, you try to get around them, but you can't because their love is so strong. <laughs> so then you're just trapped walking in the credits of their movie. <laughs> and then you just have to follow them home and become their child, it's a real hassle. <laughs> it's a real hassle. All right, thank you guys, thanks a lot.
1: Aparna and Sherla. Hi there. Hi. Um, our uh, our theme this hour is let's be frank. And you were a writer on Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. The executive producer of that show was Chris Rock. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine he is a person who is very frank when you <laughs> write a joke that he doesn't think works. Did He's... that happen to you? And was it super intimidating?
2: He's he is very frank, but he is I think he's at a level of celebrity where the funny thing about him is like he would come into a room and just start talking and not even make eye contact with anyone. And you just be like, OK, start paying attention. Like I, that I, is
1: next level of influence when you don't even have to address a specific yeah. person. They just start paying attention right. to you. It's
2: like Roman emperor level. You
1: know, the only thing I've seen that was close to that. I was in a corporate video for Microsoft, not to brag, <laughs> uh, once. Yeah. And Steve Ballmer uh, was involved in this video and he walked into the room. Yeah. And my memory, and this could be faulty, my memory is that he had a can of Diet Coke in his hand. And he didn't put it down on a table. He just released it into the air, what? and somebody caught it.
2: No, really.
1: That's like you don't even need a table if you're Steve Ballmer. That's like
2: <laughs> it's amazing. That's
1: like Chris Rock, Rock's so influence. So he's like
2: post-table celebrity. He's post-table. That's amazing. It's the dream.
1: I mean, honestly though, did you ever have a joke that you really believed in that either Chris or Kamau or somebody else? Maybe above you in the food chain was like this isn't good, and you like went to bat for it.
2: Well, I think uh, as a writer, like my sensibility is very specific to me. Uh, like as you were saying, like I'm a pretty specific entity, so like my filter is very narrow. So sometimes I would write jokes for Kamau, and he'd be like, "This is clearly an Aparna joke. Like only an Aparna can deliver this joke. Like please make it so that a normal person can say it." <laughs>
3: like,
2: I like oh. that
1: you're just an Aparna.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, this
1: isn't a Parna joke.
2: Right. I mean, it's nice in that you have a signature, you know, style, but then it's bad if you're, like, trying to filter it to the average person. (laughs) The average person, you know, not an immortal like me. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I have been following you on Twitter for a long time, and I know that writing on Twitter has been something that's really helped your career. And yeah. What's your process for for putting stuff on Twitter? Is it just you have a a thought, you put it up there, or is part of your brain thinking, like, this is work, or I'm auditioning for some person out there who I don't even know about yet?
2: Um, I feel like like many comedians or, or like, people in general, like, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter where it's, like, I love, like, that it's helped me put my stuff out there, but then it is very much like a compulsion, which is, like, why am I on this site, like, 24 hours a day, and, like, it's slowly killing me, but I can't stop, and then people are rewarding me for it. I feel like it'll be smoking in 50 years, where people are like, can you believe people did that? <laughs> and Now they're all dead.
1: <laughs> so is it a thing that you're just... You're using it for now because it's a good way to amplify your your voice and because it does have a professional upside. Is it something that you look forward to weaning yourself off of eventually?
2: I think so, but I think it'll be like, you know, it'll be like quitting smoking where I'll be like, I'll be resentful about it. And then I'll just like in the future, just like be staring out of windows, like dreaming about tweets (laughs)
1: Eventually, there'll be an area like 40 feet from the building right. with a little shelter that people yeah. will be tweeting Everybody's under it. You'll be like, those people, yeah. that is sad.
2: Yeah. Oh.
1: That'll be exciting. But I'll, I'll,
2: s- I'll be one of those people. Yeah, I'll people. see you yeah. in the shelter
1: yeah. right yeah. after the show. <laughs> Aparna Sherla, ladies Thank and gentlemen. You. Was quite an hour there I've been doing this show for a couple of years now I've never once gotten a standing ovation and then Barney Frank comes out here and he gets one and I learned oh obviously I just need to be a super influential lawmaker in Congress for 32 years so I'm going to do that I'll be back here in about 32 and you guys better give me a friggin standing O alright that's our show thank you so much we'll see you next week Our thanks to our guests, Barney Frank, Aparna Nancherla, and Joe Pug. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Ergo Depot. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Haumeister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom, Dave Jorgensen, and Ned Failing. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone and Sean McGrath. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House sound by D. Neil Blake. Our lighting is by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Culture Coalition, and listeners like you fine people. For more information about the show and how you can become a member of LiveWire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week.
0: PRI, Public
1: Radio International.